Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Steve Pakin. Steve has had a 40-year career as an author, a documentary producer. He's been the longtime host of TVO's flagship current affairs program, The Agenda, with Steve Pakin. He has been invested in the Order of Ontario, and he is an officer of the Order of Canada. But most significantly, he is ranked by my parents as the smartest person in the world, tied in a dead heat with our ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, but far ahead of the other 8 billion people on this planet. Welcome, Steve, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I am fine, although as we sit here talking, I'm very distressed about events in the Middle East over the last few days. We're talking here day after Thanksgiving. Uh, but uh, personally, I'm fine, and I'm coming to you from an undisclosed location in northern Ontario where I've been in, uh, with family enjoying the Thanksgiving weekend. Well, that's good. It's good to get a little time away, especially during these uh, times. I guess I should get this out there. I hope I don't make you feel too uncomfortable by telling you that the subtitle for this episode of the Trial Legends podcast is A Love Letter to Steve Pakin. If I may uh, set the stage for you and our listeners, I have a younger brother named Lawrence and a baby sister named Paula. And while growing up in the Willowdale Postal District of Mel Lastman's North York, my late father, Bob, and my mother, Sheila, who remains very much alive, had only two rules. The first rule was that the five of us always, without exception, had dinner together as a family. No TVs, no radios, of course, at that time, no devices, absolutely no distractions. We ate, chatted about our lives, and looking back, I have great appreciation for that mandated family time together. Now, as soon as dinner was done, my parents would turn on TVO to watch Studio 2, which, of course, eventually morphed into the agenda with Steve Bacon. And at that moment, their second rule would immediately be invoked. Everyone had to shut the hell up while Steve Pakin was talking. It therefore is with great pleasure that you're joining me here today as you have finally, Steve, validated me in my parents' eyes. It only took 53 years. <laughs> well, uh, what does one say other than I admire your parents very much and they have superb taste in television programming? Excellent. Well, I do like to keep the podcast content, you know, evergreen, i.e. listeners can enjoy it anytime in the future without the content being a timestamp. But I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge the reality that as we chat, as you know, the day after Thanksgiving, October 2023, that you and your TVO colleagues are on strike and therefore not currently working. Mm -hmm. What are you doing with your time these days and any updates you're comfortable sharing on the status of the uh, labor dispute? Uh, I'm uh, I am very comfortable, but very saddened to report that nothing is going on at the moment. There are no talks planned. There are no talks happening. Uh, there was an offer made by TVO, described by the company as our final offer to you, the union. How long ago was that? I guess about a week and a half ago. That offer was turned down uh, by the majority of the members uh, who voted in the union, and as a result, we are sort of stuck right now. And I'm not sure what's going to get us unstuck, but I can tell you that I, the whole thing makes me sad. I'm a member of the union. I have been on strike for seven weeks, uh, but I'm just sad that it's come to this because uh, TVO has been around for 53 years. I've loved working there for 31 of its 53 years. And I think we, in the main, do good work. And I would love to get back to doing it. Uh, and I hope that both sides can figure out a way to get back to the table and resolve this thing because it needs resolving. We've been off work for too long and uh, we want to get back to work. But obviously, uh, the majority wants to get back to work with what it 
sees as a fair deal. So there we go. Sure. And this, these are unprecedented times. There's never been a labor dispute in TVO's history. Well, not by employees. That's right. This is the first employee-led strike in the history of TVO, 53 years. And, and you know, I, I, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here for your listeners, but, but over the past 10 years, um, I guess management has told the employees, we need you because money is tight to settle for zero or one or one and a half percent annual increases. And the employees did that on the assumption that when times became a little less tight, uh, the offers could be a little more generous. Well, we, we know times are a little less tight now. We know inflation has been running at five, six, even as high as seven percent uh, in the last few years. And the employees, in their wisdom, have decided that they can't settle for zeros and ones anymore. They've fallen too far behind inflation, and so they want to try to do a little better, which is their right. And it is management's right to say, you can want whatever you want, but we're not going to give it to you. And thus the standoff. Well, I know I speak for everyone when I say we hope to get you back as soon as possible. And I'm sure you want to get back to work as well. You betcha. It's now time for our segment called Jewish Parents Bragging. This is your chance, Steve, to share updates on your four children and let us know how many you have managed to get off the payroll. (laughs) That's a very funny segment. Okay, where do I start with that? Well, I, I guess the, but the only thing I'd say is I have four kids and they live in four different countries around the world. So it's very, diff- it's very, very difficult to get us all together. My, my father, thank goodness, just turned 90 back in August. And my present to him was to get all of, the, all of my four kids back into the province of Ontario and more particularly into Hamilton, Ontario, so we could go visit him and and he could have uh, all of them here. And I guess I noted at the time that, yeah, when they were all here, all four of my kids back in August, that was the first time in three years that all four of them had been together in the same place. So as you can imagine, it was a very joyous experience for us. And I wish it happened more often, but look, that's, that's the way it is. They're all off pursuing their things, and that's great. That's excellent. Well, that is good. Great to have everyone together. I do want to go all the way back. Get the Steve Pakin story. You are not a native Torontonian. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. Born in Hamilton, Ontario in 1960. And my upbringing I would describe as blessedly normal. I lived on the West Mountain in Hamilton. My brother and I have one sibling. My brother and I went to nice school. We came home every day. We played. There was lots of kids in the neighborhood. We played road hockey all the time. We played street football all the time. We had lots of friends in the neighborhood. People we're still in touch with to this day. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's the one thing I just sort of remember about it. We had nice parents. We lived in a nice house. We had a nice middle-class upbringing. Uh, we had a nice normal, uh, <laughs> nice, normal childhood. And I, I guess that's the, that's the thing I remember about it the most. It was just, it was just really nice. Nice and normal are good. Absolutely. Now, Steve, your parents were very active in public life, but not from a partisan point of view. No, that's quite true. Um, my my mother was actually, I guess I take after my mother in this regard. She was very active in in the political life and the public life of the province of Ontario, but not from a partisan point of view. You're quite right about that. I like to, I guess the story that reflects that the most is, I remember the 1981 Ontario election. And the premier of Ontario at the time was Bill Davis, and Bill Davis had given her an appointment 
to be on the governing council of the University of Toronto. So a lot of people thought she was a Tory because Mr. Davis gave her that appointment. She gave money in that 1981 election to Stuart Smith, who was the leader of the Ontario Liberals, because she thought he represented an Ontario um, a Hamilton riding, and therefore she should be helpful to his aspirations. And in that 1981 election, she voted NDP. So you tell me what her politics are, and you're a better man than I am. But I think I took after her in as much as my mother had and has the ability to see good points that they all have, and she never felt a need to pick sides, and I'm the same. I'm a very, uh, I believe, unbiased, uh, apolitical type. I think that's a quality you need in the job that I have. And therefore, uh, you know, and a lot of people define their political uh, views uh, in a partisan way. I just never have and never felt any obligation to, and that's um, served me well in the job that I have. Well, it absolutely does. We're going to get to that because you have had to re retain an unbiased, independent viewpoint. Steve, I want to ask, amongst all the great skills in your toolbox, you're perhaps best known for your interviewing skills. How did your maternal grandparents' bar mitzvah gift have such an impact on you developing your interviewing skills? Someone has done his homework. There we go. I'm very impressed, Andrew. Yes. Okay. So when I was 13 years old, my mother's parents, my grandparents, bought me a television set, which seemed incredible incredibly lavish at the, well, it was an incredibly lavish gift to give to a 13-year-old at the time. But what it did was it started me watching a lot of late night television. And I watched Johnny Carson pretty much every night before going to bed. Not the whole show. He was on for 90 minutes back in the day. But, but certainly the first 30, 45 minutes of it. And by watching Johnny, Car look, uh, Johnny was a funny guy and he was the king of late night and he did a tremendous monologue and he was a great sketch artist. But it occurred to me years later that what I was actually watching for and learning about in watching Johnny do his show was that he was also a really good interviewer. He knew how to listen. He knew how to ask good short questions. He knew when to be provocative and he knew when to sort of hold back. And I think just by watching him do his thing, you know, I won't say I copied his style or, but I just, I think it had an impact. I think it planted a seed somehow and I guess the kicker to the story is I've been extremely fortunate over the years to have seen The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson live once in New York City and three times in Burbank, California. And those were absolutely unforgettable, memorable experiences. That's great. I, I never miss a chance to promote the podcast. Steve, I have to tell you to go back in our in our episodes here. I have an interview. Why is with John Biner from Bazaar who mm. was on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show it's something like 30 times. And he had great stories about, he, he verifies whether Johnny gives you the signal to come over after and sit with him or, or, or how that worked. And the other interesting one you'll enjoy is Daryl Vickers, who was the uh, co-head writer for a long period of time. And he's got some great behind the scenes stories as well. But that was he's a Toronto guy, isn't he? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. It was great that you were able to see behind the scenes and see how the show went together. So that's great. Well, I'll tell you how, and again, this is just, total serendipity. My father's sister, my aunt, Myra Pakin Richmond is her name, and she was a booker on The Tonight Show back in the 1960s and 70s. And she invited us to come down to New York, which we did. We drove down to New York City. I think it was, I don't know, 10, 12 hour drive back then. This is in 1970, I believe. And she invited us to come to The Tonight Show. Now, my brother and I were too young to actually be in the audience. So we sat at the back, 
behind one-way glass where, I guess, sort of VIPs sit, and we watch the show from there. And then later, my, my Aunt Myra moved to California, and when I went out to visit her in California, she took me again to see The Tonight Show. She wasn't working for the show then, but we went to see it again in California. Uh, and um, so I owe her a lot in terms of actually getting in to see Johnny do his thing. That's great stories. Now, a, a pivotal moment for you, Steve, was your first week at the University of Toronto. You're 18 years old, yet hadn't even taken a class yet towards your Bachelor of Arts. You walked into Hard House during clubs night, and what was your eureka moment? Well, yeah, let me just, for those who don't know, uh, set the scene a little bit. Hard House is this sort of old Gothic building on the downtown campus of the U of T. It's a you know, five-minute walk from Queen's Park. And yes, you're quite right. I walked in there, and... You know, there's the table for the geography club and the archery club and the photography club and the chess club. And I saw a table there and it was a little sign on the table that just said U of T radio. Andrew, I don't really have any explanation for what happened next, but it was, as you describe it, a eureka moment. I just like a light went on and I walked over to the table. The guy sitting behind the table, his name was Steve Kerr. He was the station manager, a student like me, a few years older than me. And I said do you have anybody who does the play-by-play for the Varsity Blues hockey and football? Because I was a massive sports fan, and that's what I wanted to do. And he said, nope. And I said, well, could I do it? And he said, sure. And literally, that's all it took. And before I knew it, I mean, I spent the next three years doing all the uh, play-by-play for the home games at Varsity Stadium for the Blues football team and in Varsity Arena for the Blues hockey team. My color commentator was a guy named Michael Landsberg, who, of course, spent, I don't know, 25, 30 years on TSN. And I think it's safe to say we were both horrible, but absolutely loved it and hopefully got a little better during the course of doing it. But it was was great times and great memories. That's a great start. Michael Landsberg's been on this podcast. He also has a great career stories, but it's amazing that the two of you started there. Are you still a, a fan of the Varsity Blues? (laughs) <laughs> yes. And you know what? Every now and then I get to the games. It's a funny thing. I'm I, I'm kind of, I know Varsity Stadium has been renovated and it looks really beautiful. But uh, I every time I look at the stadium, I also think what a missed opportunity. My mother grew up in Toronto. Her father played for the Argonauts back in 1933. So she went to tons of games and tons of great cups in Varsity Stadium when it was 25,000 seats and it was a beautiful old park. And I always thought it was a terrible missed opportunity for the U of T not to renovate that stadium, bring it back to its former glory, 25,000 seats, and have the Argonauts play there. Uh, you know, BMO, I've been to games at BMO Field. It's a fine place to watch a game. Uh, but I just think the, the convenience of having a stadium and being able to kind of bring back one of the great old parks uh, in the CFL would have been irresistible. But apparently there just was not enough support for that among academia on the campus and as a result it didn't happen which is a shame well as you know you look what they did in montreal where on the mcgill campus precisely it, yes it, it could have been really crazy, right on the subway but and you know what and i know that one of the concerns was there was just too you know too much too much noise would have been generated on game nights but i mean my goodness the season is 18 games long that means nine home games even if the argos make the playoffs maybe it's 10 maybe it's at 11 a game season. I mean, in, out of 365 days a year, you're telling me we couldn't put up with noise for 11 nights a year uh, just uh, in order to recreate this great old tradition? 
Uh, makes me makes me crazy, Andrew. Big missed opportunity there. A missed opportunity for sure. Now, Steve, at 19, you spent three summers chasing ambulances, crafting obituaries, and working City Hall for the Hamilton Spectator. You covered everything except what you actually wanted to cover, which was sports. How did what you perceived at that time as a negative get turned into a very positive development in your career? Well, you're quite right. I, I, I got a summer job at the Spectator as a sort of fill-in summer relief reporter. And of course, I told them, all I want to do is cover sports. Just send me to cover the Ticats. Send me to cover the Hamilton Cardinals, which was the uh, inter-county baseball team that played in this tiny little ballpark up on the mountain. Uh, you know, send me to cover high school. So I just want to cover sports. And a guy named Rob Austin, who was one of the senior editors of the paper at the time, he said to me, oh, okay, you're how old? I said, uh, 19. He said, okay, well, you're far too young to specialize in anything. So we're not going to let you cover any sports. What do you think of that? And I didn't think much of it, actually. But given that I was uh, a beggar and therefore not a chooser, I said, uh, OK, so what does that mean? He said, uh, just what you said, Andrew. He said, you're going to cover school board. You're going to cover city council. You're going to chase ambulances and fire trucks and police cars. And you're going to cover fires and, you know, everything else, human interest stories. But we're not going to let you do any sports at all. And that guy changed my life because I developed in three consecutive summers working at The Spectator, a real love for news and current affairs, which I don't know that I would have had he not made that decision. So uh, he, Rob is no longer with us, but I uh, think of him fondly all the time because I really think he's the guy who, as much as anybody, got my so-called career on the path that it's been on for the last 41 years. Amazing. He wouldn't have been open to it. And, and uh, sometimes you go down a path you don't expect, and you certainly did. Quite so. You then headed down to Massachusetts and earned your master's degree in broadcast journalism at Boston University. What did the dean of BU's journalism school advise you as the best answer during job interviews? Andrew, I got to hand it to you. You really have done your research here. Uh, yes, you're quite right. I remember on my last day at BU, I did a, a two-year master's degree in one year. I wanted to really crunch it so that it would be less expensive and I could get back to Ontario. I knew I always wanted to come back to Ontario and try and uh, make a living there. Uh, so I asked him on my very last day, his name was David Claytell. And again, he is no longer with us, but like Rob Austin, another very important influence in my life. And uh, I said to him, what's the one thing I can tell a prospective employer that I can do for them so that they'll hire me? And his answer was, you tell them you can do everything because you can. And he then took me, you know, he spent two minutes telling me, just remember this, you've taken a course in enterprise reporting. You've taken a course in magazine writing. You've taken a course in how to be a news director. You've taken a course, I mean, he went on and on. And it's, it's a fact, over the, over the year I was there, I probably took, I don't know, 10 or 15 different courses in a wide variety of things related to television, radio, newspapering, magazines. And he said, you just tell them You've got the experience and can do anything. And, uh, you know, I tried that. I think the first 30 times I got rejection letters, but eventually I hit pay dirt and eventually I got that first job. And he was right because I needed to be able to do everything in that first job because I did do everything in that first job. So it was a good education. Well, let's talk about that first job. Your first full-time job, 1982 at CHFI, CFDR, now 680 News covering City Hall in Queen's Park for three years. Now, in 85, 
just to jump ahead, because I want to show the contrast, you moved over to CBC local television news, CBLT Channel 5 in Toronto, hosting the 6 o'clock news. I want to ask about the transition from radio to television and whether that was difficult. Huh. Okay. Yeah, I did three years on the radio, and I really loved it. I was covering City Hall. Art Eggleton was the mayor back then. Jack Layton was a newly elected Toronto City Councillor in 1982. So it was kind of you did have the sense that uh, if you were covering municipal politics, this was a good time and this was a good place to be. But then after three years of doing that, my then sister-in-law, who was a producer at CBLT, Channel 5 in Toronto, said, there is a street reporter's job here that's, I, th- I think it was a four or five month contract. It was a short term contract. Why don't you apply for that? See if you can get it. And maybe they'll lead to something else. And I guess it was considered a bit of a dumb thing to do at the time because I had a nice full-time job at CHFI making, I think, a whopping $18,000 a year. And why I would risk a full-time job to go to CBC on a four-month contract, which at the end of it, that could be it, seemed like a really dumb thing to do. But television did intrigue me. And so I gave it a shot. And the four-month contract turned into a nine-month contract, turned into a year-long contract, which eventually turned into a full-time job. So I guess in the end, wasn't such a dumb thing to do after all. Well, not, because you certainly learned so many different things at CBC. You filled in for Knowlton Nash. You filled in for Peter Mansbridge. You filled in for Ralph Ben Merke. You filled in for Ken Daniels. You really broadened your skill set. That's true. And the beautiful thing, I was seven years at CBC, and that's quite right. Uh, My main job was as a reporter for the 6 o'clock news, and then, as you point out, eventually the anchor of that 6 o'clock news. But, uh, you you know, the CBC is a big place, and when people go on vacation, and if you have the ambition and drive to try as many experiences as you can, uh, they'll let you. And so you're quite right. I filled it on sports. I filled it on midday. I filled it on the national. I filled it on news world, as they then called it. I filled in doing entertainment reporting. I filled in doing uh, mini documentaries for the news. So that, again, by the end of the seven years at CBC, I had a really, I think, well-rounded journalistic background to lead to what turned into uh, the job I guess I always wanted to do, which was at my next place of employment. And in 1992, you joined TVO. How did that move come about via the late Peter Herendorf? Yes. Okay. The, The news director I worked for at CBC in Toronto, his name was Howard Bernstein. And Howard left CBC, and he went to TVO, and then he talked to uh, Peter Herndorf, who was the chair and CEO of TVO at the time, and he said, I know we're thinking of starting, we, we have a bunch of shows here at TVO right now, we're thinking of starting a new Queen's Park show, and then we're also thinking of starting a daily show, which TVO did not have at that point. And he said to Peter, I think I know a guy we can get who I think would be good for that. And he mentioned me. So... I came over to TVO to have a meeting with Peter Herndorf in his big corner office, and we had a grand... Peter went to Harvard, so we had this Boston connection. We schmoozed about Boston. We schmoozed about sports. We schmoozed about politics. We just really hit it off personally. And then he said to me, look, I I, I want to be very direct with you. I want you to come to TVO. I, I think we're doing some exciting things now. I think we're going to be doing some more exciting things in the future, and I want you to be part of it. But I'll be honest with you. You know... I, he said, I used to be at CBC as well. He was the vice president for English language programming at CBC. And he said, you know, you will always miss CBC if you leave, but you won't regret leaving. 
And we talked and talked and talked, and I just loved what he was proposing. And so I went to TVO. And within about three days of working at TVO, I went up to Peter afterwards and I said, Peter, you know what? You're actually wrong. I don't miss CBC at all. I was so into his vision of what he wanted to turn TVO into that I just sort of, you know, I dove in and, um, well, 31 years later, I'm still there. And your beginning was significant because Elwee Yost, who was Mr. TVO, first welcomed you on air to TVO. Steve, who was Elwee Yost and, and why was his warm welcome so significant to you? Well, Elwee Yost was, and I would suggest is, Mr. TVO. Elwee hosted something called Saturday Night at the Movies for a couple of decades, and he was, he turned more people in the province of Ontario onto movies, the classic films, uh, more than anybody else ever, ever, ever then or ever since. And yeah, he was just the most famous guy who worked at TVO. And my first day there, we were doing, I think we were doing one of these begging for dollars things, you know, where we, we used to have these telethons where we asked people to to phone in and give us a pledge or something like that. And Elwee said, I want to introduce TVO's newest current affairs personality. And he put his arm on my arm as he introduced me. And I'll tell you, I still get goosebumps thinking about it because uh, I had so much admiration and respect for him. And I thought to myself, you know, if Elwee thinks I'm okay, well, maybe this will work out after all. And it was just a, was just a lovely moment. And I'll tell you, the, um, I interviewed Graham Yost, who is his son, who's a uh, you know great uh, Hollywood producer, has made some great movies over the years. And I remember during that interview telling Graham about that moment and how, and how important it was to me. And Graham said he remembered it, and we both sort of got all verklempt at the, <laughs> at the retelling of the story. And yeah, it's just, it, it, it was a beautiful, beautiful moment, and it just sort of signaled to me I think this is all going to work out okay. And it sure did. What a great start. Of course, as you note, 31 years at TVO, stretching over five different programs. Steve, it would be great if you could please give us the summary of your time at TVO. Well, yeah, five different shows, which suggests that maybe I can't keep a job all that well. But I came over there to, to host an existing show called Between the Lines, which was kind of a weekly town hall show. Uh, John Godfrey, who's a former member of Parliament, actually was the the host of that show, and he left TVO, and I took over from him. And we also wanted to create a new uh, provincial affairs show, uh, which we did. It was called Fourth Reading. Uh, you know, every bill before it becomes law gets first, second, and third reading. We were fourth reading, so we were going to be that extra analysis. If it was a football show, we would have called it the fifth quarter. You get the idea. I ended up doing Between the Lines for a couple of years, and then we created that new daily current affairs show that Peter Herndorf promised, and that was Studio Two. So at this point, I'm doing, since 1994, I'm doing Studio Two daily and uh, fourth reading weekly. And then after about 12 years, I think of that, uh, those shows got canceled. Oh, I forgot one along the way here, Andrew. We decided to create a, um, a foreign affairs show midway through called Diplomatic Immunity where we had Janice Stein and Richard Gwynn and Eric Margulies and then later Patrick Martin uh, come in every week, and they would be our regular recurring panel, and we'd have a special guest, and we'd do a half-hour weekly show on foreign affairs. Then in 2006, all of that got canceled, and it all got folded into this new show called The Agenda, and I have been doing The Agenda ever since 2006, 
And although it is not happening right now, I'm very hopeful that it will start up again because I'd like to get my bum back into that studio and on my chair and start talking to people again. Absolutely. It will be great to get back. You know, Steve, you've done hundreds, thousands of interviews. Your favorite guest was a gentleman who did not even speak English, but who hmm. changed the course of world history. Please explain. I'm, I'm not sure he was my favorite guest because, as you point out, we really couldn't develop the kind of rapport you would want for a favorite guest. But he was certainly the most impactful guest that I ever interviewed on TVO, and that was Mikhail Gorbachev. This was after he was no longer the leader of the Soviet Union, but he was in Toronto, I, I believe, on a, um, a, a lecture uh, series tour. And somebody that we had had on the program frequently from York University, a guy named Sergei Plekhanov, he knew Gorbachev. Uh, Sergei was originally from uh, the Soviet Union. And so he helped us secure an interview. And you're absolutely right. When you are sitting two feet away from a man who changed the course of world history, it, it does send a tingle up your spine. And Andrew, I think like I'm probably about a decade older than you. But, but having said that, you and I probably remember a time when you went to bed at night and there were 30,000 Soviet nuclear missiles. Uh, pointed at 30,000 United States and NATO nuclear missiles. And you occasionally wondered, uh, am, am I going to wake up in the morning or are we going to have World War III overnight? And Mr. Gorbachev helped bring that state of mutually assured destruction to an end. And, uh, you know, for a bunch of reasons, which we don't have to go into here, but he was one of the guys uh, who made it happen. And so to be able to have a chance to talk to him about all of that was just a real singular honor. On the other side of that coin, of course, is that when you do as many interviews as you've done over your career, inevitably you have to deal with a few cranks. Trigger warning, as the kids say, Steve, I don't want to reignite your PTSD, but why was Mordecai Richler such a pain in the ass when you interviewed him over 25 years ago for your old show, Studio 2? I guess I just got him on a bad day. And uh, while I wouldn't say I'm haunted by that interview still, I definitely still think about it from time to time. And it definitely still bothers me that for whatever reason, I was unable to sort of penetrate his shield of indifference and, um, and, and just was not interested in playing ball. He was there in our studio on a book tour. And I don't know if it was the fact that he just didn't love the book or he didn't want to be touring on this book or I got him on a bad day or I don't know. And, and the weird thing about it, Andrew, was his son... Daniel Richler, had hosted a book show at TVO called Imprint. And I knew Daniel a little bit. And before I went to TVO, I actually called Daniel up and I said, look, they want to offer me a job. Uh, tell me, is TVO a good place to work? And, you know, he gave me some very valuable advice. And I told Mordecai this, all of this, before the show started, thinking, say something nice about a guy's kid that you're about to interview. And, you know, that will sort of ingratiate myself with him a little bit. Not a chance. Didn't help at all. And I'll tell you, by the end of the interview, I was just, I could feel the flop sweat on the back of my neck, and it was just a dud. And I'm so disappointed, because of course, he's a Canadian icon and incredibly famous author, a very celebrated author, and rightly so, but we just never connected. And uh, in addition to only giving you two-word answers, it, it didn't end that well. <laughs> no, I think I think what you're referring to is that the way the format of Studio 2 was, that we would bring the interview to an end, I would thank the guest... The director would then cut the mics, he would cut to a wide shot, and you'd see us sort of lip-flapping, chatting a little bit for five, six, seven seconds, and then the director would fade to black. And on that occasion, 
you would have seen the director cut to the wide shot, the mics cut, and Mordecai rip his microphone off and walk off the set. He couldn't even wait the extra five seconds to fade to black. He just wanted to get the hell out of there. So, again, not my finest moment, and I still don't know why. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Steve Pakin, please check out the more than 175 additional episodes available anytime. we got Evan Solomon, Zev Shalev, Ted Wallishan, Gordon Martineau, and Wendy Mesley. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. Steve, you've interviewed world leaders as well as every Canadian Prime Minister since Pierre Trudeau, but you apparently only got starstruck while meeting the snake, Kenny Stabler. Tell us about that interaction. Okay, I was a big Oakland Raider fan as a kid, and I remember the moment I became an Oakland Raider fan. They were playing the Miami Dolphins in the playoffs in Miami, and it was fourth down, and uh, Kenny Stabler was a left-handed quarterback, and he rolled out to his left, and as he was being sacked on fourth down with the game on the line, he threw a gorgeous touchdown pass to Clarence Davis in the end zone, and the Raiders won the game. I think that was 1974, and from that moment on, I was a, a Kenny Stabler fan and an Oakland Raider fan. And Kenny came to Toronto on a book tour, and I didn't get to interview him, but Bruce Dobigan, who was the sports guy at CBC at the time, did. And when Bruce told me that he was coming into the studio for an interview, I said, oh, Bruce, I got to meet him. You got to let me meet him. So I did. And I just, oh, I was just at a loss for words. I mean, I was just so starstruck, far more starstruck than I was when I interviewed Mr. Gorbachev or Bill Clinton or Jimmy Carter or any of the prime ministers. Just, you know, when, when you're 14 years old and this guy's your hero, uh, <laughs> nothing can replace that. So we had a good chat before the interview. And then uh, Bruce sort of had to say to me, okay, that's enough of that. I got to get to work now. <laughs> Anyway, it was a, it was a great great moment, and um, and I and I met Kenny Stabler actually at a Super Bowl game years later, and we had a picture taken, which I still have, and um, it's a very happy memory for me. Well, the best part of that, Steve, is when you meet your heroes. It's, sometimes it's touch and go. In fact, people say don't meet your heroes, but it's great to hear that when you got to interact with them, you were it was positive. It was beautiful. Yeah. You've interviewed the last nine premiers of Ontario, but our current one, Doug Ford, has so far refused to appear with you on the agenda in his role as premier, although it should be noted you have had him on your show before he was premier. Why won't Doug Ford come on to Ontario's public broadcaster as the top elected official in Ontario? The short answer is I don't know. The longer answer is every time I ask for uh, ask his staff if the premier will do an interview, the answer that comes back is, I'm sorry, the Premier is unavailable. And that's all I get. And I know the Premier does give interviews to media. I mean, he does press conferences. He's perfectly good when he does press conferences. Uh, he does them frequently, takes questions from reporters. He has done numerous one-on-one -on -one interviews. In fact, I, I looked into this for a column I was writing about this, uh, I don't know, a year or two ago. And I, I made a list of all the one-on-one -on -one interviews that the Premier had done. And it, I mean, there were dozens dozens and dozens of one-on-one -on -one interviews with uh, all sorts of uh, legacy, online media, everybody. But for whatever reason, and I don't blame him, I actually think his staff has more to do with this than he does, for whatever reason, they have decided they don't want him to do the agenda. And I'm sorry about that because he and I have a perfectly good professional relationship. I know that on the times that he has come into the studio, once uh, to do a, an interview about his book, 
uh, once uh, to do um, uh, an all-candidates meeting when he was running for the PC party leadership, uh, once when he was running for mayor in 2014 against John Tory and Olivia Chow. And how ironic is that? How ironic is that? Olivia Chow is now the mayor. Doug Ford is now the premier. John Tory is out of politics. That's a um, that's nothing I would have predicted on that day in 2014. But in any event, uh, we've had very good experiences during our interviews. Um, the fact that he's come back three times suggests to me that, um, and he said to me actually, uh, I get great feedback when I do your when I do your show. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, since he has become premier, which is now five plus years. Uh, his people have not seen fit to allow him to be interviewed on my program, and uh, I'm not sure why. Well, you don't need advice from me, but keep at it. Persistence. Steve, you still keep in touch with your very first interview, the home builder, Hugh Heron. <laughs> That's funny, yeah. Hugh Heron is the first guy I ever interviewed as a professional journalist, and we're talking 1982 now. And I remember taking my little tape recorder out to his office, and we were doing an interview about the, um, remember, 1982, we're in the, we're in the thick of, uh, I guess at the time, what was the worst recession since the Great Depression. And interest rates are, are high and inflation is high and the housing market is in uh, serious difficulty. And my interview with Hugh Heron was to sort of find out how we could kickstart housing starts uh, in Toronto and in Ontario. And, you know, here I am, 22 years old, walking in to interview this guy who's one of the leading home builders in the province. And I'm sure he looked at me and, and thought to himself, <laughs> and, and let's face it, I was 6'2", maybe 145 pounds, maybe, soaking wet, uh, wearing, you know, a, a plaid shirt with a pair of jeans or something. I mean, I did not convey uh, an image of um, uh, somebody who looked like he knew what he was doing. And Hugh was just very, very professional and kind. And I'm sure my questions were stupid. And I'm sure I had absolutely zero gravitas in asking them. And yet he was very kind and sort of took me through everything. And I just never forgot that. And every now and then we bump into each other at things nowadays. And uh, it's always very warm. I'm always happy to see him. And I always remind him that he was my first. And I, and I thank him for being so kind to me. That's great. Talk about the importance of moving with the times and taking advantage of Rather than fighting technological changes, for example, the agenda was the first current affairs program in Canada to be available not just on TV, but live streamed on Twitter and Facebook and online every night. I don't think you're TikToking, but you, you've uh, taken to technology. Uh, very much so. And I have to give credit to a lot of the younger producers who were on the agenda at that time who were saying, look at Pakin, I know we people in your generation watch television. You know, you, you sit down in front of a television at 8 o'clock at night and you watch the agenda in that way, or maybe you tape it on your VCR. I'm not even sure we had PVRs yet, but maybe you tape it on your VCR and you watch it back later. Uh, but they said, our generation wants to watch what it wants, when it wants, and how it wants. And sometimes... We don't want to sit down for, quote-unquote, appointment television in front of a TV set at 8 o'clock at night. We want to watch it on our smartphone, on our laptop, uh, whenever we feel like it, and, um, and we need to do something about that. And they convinced the higher-ups that we needed to live stream the program at 8 o'clock at night uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, so that you didn't have to be uh, in your living room sitting in front of a television set. You could watch it wherever you wanted to. Uh, and then after it was live streamed, it was archived on a website. So even better, you could watch it whenever you felt like it. You didn't have to be a slave to uh, the live television 
experience. And yes, I think you're quite right. I think we were the first uh, daily live current affairs program in the country to do that. And I'm convinced that um, that introduced us to a whole new kind of audience that we otherwise would not have had. And I think that decision has served us well to this day. And even you were ahead of your time. You were kind of one of the leading guys on Twitter at one point. I did embrace it fairly early and and quite accidentally. I think the year was 2010. Maybe it was the G20. Uh, All of these countries, uh, the leading economies in the world, were coming to Toronto uh, to meet to discuss how to improve the world's economy. And, uh, you know, anybody who was in Toronto at that time will remember that basically all hell broke loose. And there were demonstrations and protests, and I think a police car was set on fire, and there was a smashing in of buildings, and it was really, some of the protest got out of hand. Uh, Not a lot, but some. And I essentially, that night, had 2,000 Twitter followers and just decided to go into the street and follow my nose and just just sort of followed this group of protesters wherever they went. And at a certain point in the evening, they ended up down at the Novotel on, um, on the Esplanade near the waterfront in Toronto, and the police kettled them. And if, if you remember the G20, you will remember this turn where... You know, the police would sort of surround the protesters on all sides with riot gear and then move in and quite violently uh, arrest people and throw them in the back of a, what you're not allowed to call a paddy wagon anymore. I don't know what you call those vehicles, but uh, throw them in there and arrest them. And they did that, I think, to about 1,600 people in Toronto that night who were arrested for the mere, quote unquote, crime of engaging in peaceful protest. And I live tweeted everything I saw that night including rubber bullets flying around. And it was just, it was, and a journalist being held down by three police officers and beaten, like, like seriously assaulted. I, I put it all on Twitter and then uh, saw my Twitter followers go from 2,000 to, I think, 12,000 in one night. And that sort of got me into uh, believing in the power of Twitter. And from that moment on, I've sort of been... Um, Hooked is not quite the right word, but I've tried to I've tried to engage in the positive aspects of Twitter while trying hard to avoid and not get sucked into the toxic lake of crap that it can also be. You're ahead of your time, but as you know, it's uh, still to be settled, good or bad for society. It's going to be a little strange for you on the Toronto Legends podcast to be talking about Boston, but I absolutely do have to discuss Boston, Massachusetts with you, where you went to school at BU, Boston University. Now, I'm born and bred here in Toronto, Steve. I also lived and worked in Boston for three years. I think Toronto is the absolute best city in the world. My wife, Vicky's hometown of Montreal is number two, but Boston is a very close number three. Steve, do you concur? Well, I guess... Being from Hamilton originally, I'm going to go with Hamilton as number one. I'm going to go with Toronto as number two. I'm going to go with uh, Manitoulin Island, Kagawang. Uh, Kagawang, Ontario on Manitoulin Island is my number three, because that's where I spend some time in the summers, and that's actually where you've got me right now. And uh, okay, we'll go with Boston after that. But now I'm curious, what did you do in Boston? I didn't know this about you. I was warned about this, Steve, that you were going to turn this around and go back to your interviewing roots and interview me. (laughs) I'm not going to let you do it, but I will tell you, I was down there working for Stop and Shop Supermarkets, the Loblaws of New England, on behalf of the great, late, great Jerry Penser. When I worked with him for Cot, we were doing their 
private label beverages. So he loaned me to stop and shop, but I'm turning this around on you. And you're a noted Red Sox fan and, you know, you did your master's degree in journalism at BU. So casual observers will assume you became a Red Sox fan while going to school in Boston, but it's actually the opposite. You are correct. And this is, uh, I guess, a little embarrassing to admit, but it is true. I went to Boston University. I, 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 I hoped to be able to go to Boston University. I actually applied to three different American universities that year in the hopes that one would take me, and I was desperate that it be Boston U. And thank goodness it turned out that way. The other two rejected me, but Boston U accepted me. And Boston U, for those who don't know, is a five-minute walk from Fenway Park. And I had already been a massive Red Sox fan. And the notion of being able to take sort of just a, an exotic year off from living in Ontario, where I wanted to make my life, um, I, I had been born and raised in Southern Ontario. I wanted to return to Southern Ontario and work there. But I thought one year of kind of Walter Mitty-like existence where I could go to a great school, take some great courses, and go to a lot of Red Sox games. I just thought, I can't beat that. And that's what happened. So, And I've gone back not, not every single year since then. I graduated in 1982. I haven't got back every year, but almost every year I've gone back, including for some you know, World Series games and American League Championship Series games. And I've just had some of the greatest memories of my life with family members in Fenway Park. And it's just, you know, there there are a very small handful of places in this world that just really get into my soul. I'm in one of them right now on Manitoulin Island. I, I get a very warm and fuzzy feeling every time I go back to Hamilton every weekend to visit my parents. And Boston's another one. I, I just want to get to Fenway Park and I walk up the ramp and I and I just look at all that green and you see this is the field where Babe Ruth played in right field. And then you look at that green monster and you say, Ted Williams patrolled left field right there. Like it's the same left field Ted Williams and Carl Yastrzemski and Jim Rice patrolled between 1939 and 19-whatever, 80, you know, middle 90s. And it's just... I, I, it, it just hits me. It hits me where I live. So yeah, that's why I love it. I'm with you. I lived in Kenmore Square. I used to eat at the deli house, break the house, they called it. And I'm with you. It's 1912 is when the stadium comes from, but it's the best place to watch a baseball game in the, in the world. I agree with you a hundred percent. It totally is. And I, and because it was built in 1912, uh, you know, it hasn't got all the fancy amenities that a, the newer stadiums would have. That's very true. But the memories and the ghosts and the, I mean, it just, it all happened there. So I'm okay with the fact that the seats are too small for my big bum, but but it's okay. People were smaller back then, I know. Yeah. I want to share with you the two things I learned living in Boston, Steve. Number one, when you drive, don't signal because you give away your strategy. <laughs> and number two, there's a good reason they call the locals mass holes. <laughs> Very true. It's a funny thing, Andrew. I still do this, and it's wrong, but I learned how to walk streets in Boston. And by that, I mean, in Boston, when the light, if you're a pedestrian, and the light turns orange the other way, that's when you start walking. There is nobody in Boston who waits for the pedestrian signal to turn green, and then they walk. When the light turns orange in the other direction, people start looking. If there's no cars coming, boom. 
Sometimes even if there are cars coming, they start walking. And I notice I do that in Toronto too, and nobody else does. People wait for the signal to turn here, and I, but I, I, the habit has been formed, and I just can't get out of it. It's a go-go city. If you're, you're a pedestrian, you're taking your life in your own hands. you got to act proactively. I do have to say, and I think you'll agree with me, you got to hand it, though, to the city of Boston, as they truly are the city of champions. I saw a great photo during their last championship parade. I don't even remember if it was the Bruins or the Patriots or the Red Sox or the Celtics. But a teenager was holding up a placard that said, I'm 15 years old, and this is my 15th Zappo Championship Parade. I mean, that says it all. They it, they really did go through an amazing time. You know, Tom Brady and the Patriots, who just won, I, I guess, six Super Bowls there, and the Bruins and the Celts, each won a Stanley Cup and a Larry OB trophy. And then the Red Sox won the World Series in 04, 07, 13, and 18. And I, I, I know some people lived 80s. They waited 86 years for that Red Sox World Series to happen because they hadn't won one since 1918. I didn't wait 86 years, but I did wait, I think, about 30. And I'll tell you what, I prefer my journey to that 15-year-old kid's. That kid doesn't know what suffering is like and can't know the joy of experiencing a World Series win when you've waited 30 years from it, or for it, rather. He, he's just not going to understand that contrast. And I think I actually loved it more, enjoyed it more, got more out of it. It just squeezed every drop out of that lemon because I had to wait so long for that first title. And of course, the Red Sox were never like the Cubs. The Cubs were always awful. They, they never won, but they were always awful. The Red Sox were always good, and they would always just get so close, and then they would break your heart, right? 1986, the ball through Bill Buckner's legs and so on. They'd get close, but just leave you dangling. And what was so great about 2004 was that even right up until the last strike, when Keith Folk was throwing the pitch to, I think, uh, Edgar Renteria from the Cardinals, and it would be the last out of the World Series, I was still thinking at that moment, Okay, how are they going to lose it now? How are they going to break our hearts now? How are they going to blow it? But they didn't, and they won, and it was uh, glorious. It was, it was, Rudy was glorious. You've given me the best pep talk ever because, as you know, we're going to start the 56th campaign where we try to win a championship for the Leafs. In my lifetime, I've never seen them win. See, you, you make me feel better that once they do, I'm really going to enjoy it. You are. You are, and it, and it will be worth the wait. I remember interviewing Brian Burke about this when he was running the Leafs. Uh, this was at TVO, and and he just sort of, you could see the shine in his eye. He was talking to me about a conversation he had with, I, I think it was Lou Lemorello at the time, and he said, can you imagine, I mean, can you imagine what the parade is going to be like when the Maple Leafs finally win that Stanley Cup after all those years? And I think we got a taste of it with the Raptors. I mean, the Raptor celebration in 2019 was just astonishing. And I have to believe the Leafs would be even bigger. And I can't wait. I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime, Andrew, but uh, hope springs eternal. Hope springs eternal. Now, of course, you love to play hockey, but you love to watch baseball. And I, allow me, please, to present your baseball bona fides. Your first baseball game was at Jerry Park in Montreal to watch the Expos. The very first spring training you attended was the Expos camp in West Palm Beach, Florida. You were present at the Toronto Blue Jays' very first game in April 1977 at Exhibition Stadium, and you attended your first game at the greatest stadium of all time, Fenway Park, as noted in Boston in 1978. You love baseball. You love baseball road trips. 
Why? Two reasons. Number one, oh, before I answer that, I got to tell you about the opening day for the Blue Jays, April 7th, 1977. My dad's hilarious. My dad sent me to school with a note saying, please excuse Steve from school today. His grandmother is very sick and he has to go visit her, but she should be better by the bottom of the ninth. Sincerely, Larry Pakin. That was very funny. Anyway, yes, so I, I was lucky enough, my brother and I and my parents, we were lucky enough to be there for the very first opening day for the Blue Jays. And my mother went to the next 43 in a row. She went to 44 straight opening days until her streak came to an end. But okay, why do I love road trips? Um, number one, of course, is the game itself. I love to watch baseball. Number two is even more so the people I go with. And we have been lucky enough that my dad and I and my mom and I have gone on baseball road trips. And we've also taken as many of their grandchildren as are available. When they were younger, that was easier. It's harder nowadays to do that. But I've just experienced some of the most wonderful moments in my life at baseball games. And baseball is the best for this, Andrew, because it's not like it's not like basketball, which is a two-hour assault on your senses all the time. Uh, it's not like hockey, where it's the action is nonstop and very exciting back and forth. Or football, where there's, you know, potentially, if you go to an NFL game, 70,000 people in the stadium, and it's just, you know, super loud all the time. Baseball is different. Baseball is moments of great excitement, and then moments where not a lot's happening. And in those moments where not a lot's happening... You can talk to the person you're with. And I really believe that the relationship that my kids have with their grandfather in particular, because he was the guy that we went to most of the road trips with, I think the relationship they have with him is as good as it is because of those baseball games. And so, yeah, um, we, we did one where we were in October here. The last baseball road trip we took was in July, first week of July. My brother, my dad, and I, Fenway Park, Boston, along with about 10 other people. It was a good group of us. And, you know, again, like just so memorable. And one of the guys who came along on that trip was a guy that my dad hadn't seen in, oh, I don't know, 30 or 40 years, like a friend of his from way back in the day. So these things are just really extraordinary for creating these magic moments in families uh, that we just will have forever. It's all about the conversations and the relationships. Yep, you got it. It is now time for Steve Pakin, Internet True or False. Number one, Steve Pakin has his own dedicated table at the Mandarin at Young and Eglinton. Internet True or False? <laughs> um, when my daughter was younger, we used to go there a lot, but we do not have a dedicated table. But we do like that restaurant, there's no doubt about it. Number two, Scotty Bowman gave Steve Pakin his personal tickets to a Pittsburgh Penguins playoff game simply because Steve's father asked nicely, internet true or false? That one is true, if you can believe it. And Scotty Bowman and my brother, incidentally, share the same birthday. And Scotty Bowman and my dad are the same age. So we have these connections to Scotty Bowman, and we're literally, we're on a baseball road trip to Pittsburgh. We went to see the Pirates play, and we thought, while we were in town, there was a Penguins playoff game. These were in the good old days. You know, Mario Lemieux, Yarmir Yager, it was, they were, Penguins were great. And we thought, let's just drive by the Igloo, I think as they called the uh, hockey arena back then. Let's just drive by and see if, um, you know, see if we can scare up some tickets. Maybe there's a scalper on the streets or something like that, and we can get some tickets to the game. 
And wouldn't you know it, as we drive by, Scotty Bowman, who was coaching the Penguins at the time, he walks into the arena, and my dad rolls down the window of the car and says, Hey, Scotty, you got any tickets for tonight's hockey, or tomorrow night's hockey game for a bunch of guys from Hamilton, Ontario? And Scotty literally yells back at him, Be here at the box office, 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. I'll take care of you. And that's what happened. We showed up 9 o'clock the next day, in walks Scotty, but we thought, there's no way this is going to happen. But in walks Scotty, takes us to the box office. We paid for the tickets, just to be clear, but he gave us his tickets, and we went to the game that night, and I think, actually, I think Penguins won in double overtime. It was a fabulous game, and like, oh my God, how fabulous was that? I'm so glad that was true. Number three, Steve Pakin keeps a Costco-sized jar of peanut butter open and available at all times on his work desk at TVO. Internet true or false? Uh, the only part of that that is false is the open part. I couldn't keep it open or it would dry out. But absolutely true, big, big tub of peanut butter on the desk all the time. Yes. Number four, here's a great quote. I am on speaking terms with everybody I know. Whether they're on speaking terms with me is another question. <laughs> Steve Pakin, that quote is attributed to you. True or false? Uh, it was it was uh, true when I said it. <laughs> I'm not sure it's true anymore, but I'm... It was true when I said it to, I think, a Globe and Mail reporter many years ago. Yeah, I still think, no, let me rephrase. I think essentially that's true. I can't think of anybody in the world right now that I would refuse to speak to. I, I know some people who would refuse to speak to me, but I, I, there's nobody I wouldn't speak to. It remains internet true. Number five, Ken Dryden is a loyal viewer of the agenda with Steve Pakin and regularly emails the host with his feedback. Internet true or false? That is true, and I'm quite uh, delighted to say that um, Mr. Dryden, when he does email, offers some really, really good advice, almost all of which I have taken over the years because um, he is a loyal viewer. And um, and we've, I mean, it's been a great pleasure to have him on, on our program uh, numerous times over the years, particularly when he has a new book come out. Uh, it's always great to have him on. And actually, I think one of the last interviews I did before the strike happened was with his daughter, who is a real world-class researcher uh, in uh, educating refugee children. She's a professor at Harvard University, and she has a new book out on this. So we interviewed her, and 99% of that interview was about her work. And then I said to her, okay, I got one last question for you. Who's your favorite goalie in NHL history? And she sort of paused and smiled, and she said, uh... My dad? Because I hadn't mentioned the fact that Ken was her dad up until then. So that was, I, I thought, a cute way to end the interview. And a side note, of course, is that one of your books, The New Game, is a direct homage to Ken Dryden's book, The Game. Absolutely right. Uh, his book, The Game, is maybe the best sports book ever written. And it's fantastic. I've read it numerous times. I love it so much. And uh, I wrote a book about the state of hockey, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, after the lockout season. And uh, that book was called A New Game uh, because, uh, I, yes, I wanted to pay homage to Ken. That's exactly right. And here's the sixth and last one, internet, true or false. It has been noted that you never see the two legends of TVO, Steve Pakin and Pokeroo, together in the same room at the same time. Thus, Steve Pakin is actually also Pokeroo. Internet, true or false? Andrew, I'm afraid that's going to have to remain a national security secret. Well, I tried. You can't blame me for trying. Steve, you've been fabulous with your time. 
I do want to ask before we close, are you working on any books or other current projects outside of the work you will inevitably and hopefully soon continue at TVO? I wrote a book about a year and a half ago on former Prime Minister John Turner, so I'm still out speaking about that one. And uh, no plans at the moment to write a ninth book. Mr. Turner was my eighth book and uh, very much enjoyed doing it, And um, but no plans at the moment for any more. And a- a- as I have promised my wife, I think eight books in a row now, this is my last one, Honest. And she's downstairs <laughs> listening right now saying, yeah, right. As they say, the last one until your next one. Exactly. And where can we best follow you and uh, know what you're up to? Uh, I am on what they used to call Twitter, now called X. Uh, my handle is at S-Paikin, S-P-A-I-K-I-N. And God willing, I'll be back on TVO soon. Well, it has been proven that it is okay to meet your dad and mom's heroes. It's been a great pleasure to get to know you. I really want to thank you for your time. It's been great hearing all your stories. And I'm really hoping we're going to see you back on TV soon. Same here. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Steve. And to the listeners, on behalf of Steve Pagan, I am Andrew Applebaum, saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Hi. This is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.